you'll want to turn in your Bibles to Job, the book of Job. We're going to be in chapters 18 and 19 uh, today. Seems like we just started uh, the book, but here we are. Chapters 18 and 19, we're going to be going through those as we go. I'm not going to read them all now. We'll read them uh, sort of as we get there, or most of them anyways. Um, So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us to the book of Job this morning to learn more about how to deal with being wounded by the words of others how to respond to those who do the wounding. And Lord, sometimes we just don't know how to respond. And so we just cut them off. We don't think our words are enough, so we don't say anything. And often we suffer in silence. So help us to turn to you, to find our comfort in you, to trust in you for our vindication. Build our faith by teaching us how to wait faithfully for you trusting that at the last you will stand upon the earth and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And so we pray, speak through the story of a man called Job. By the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. I came across a story of a man and was in the grocery store. He was waiting in a line, it was a long line. And he was able to appreciate the great, patience of the mother who was uh, right in front of him um, and the patience she was displaying with a crying daughter in this long checkout line at the grocery store. And at each outburst of the daughter, the mom continued to respond calmly. Don't be upset, Sophie. We'll be home soon. It's okay, Sophie. We're almost done and then you'll get a break. Just be patient a little longer, Sophie. It will be over soon. And the man finally responded to her and said, I am so impressed with how calmly and patiently you responded to your daughter. How old is Sophie? And the woman replied, oh no, you misunderstood. My daughter's name is Ashley. My name is is Sophie. (laughs) I guess reassuring yourself is one strategy for patience while you've been forced to wait. How do you feel about waiting? Do you enjoy a nice long wait in the checkout line at the grocery store? How about at the doctor's office? or in the line at Starbucks, or stuck in traffic on Route 7, or shuffling along in the security line at Dulles, or my particular favorite, at the DMV. Those are casual kinds of waiting. But there's other much more serious kinds of waiting. A single person who wants to be married, waiting for a spouse. A childless couple who wants to start a family, waiting for a child. A person stuck in a job they hate, waiting for work that's meaningful. A person who's ill and who is hoping and waiting 
to get better. Person struggling with depression, waiting for a morning that they might feel happy. Or a person that's suffering in a hurtful marriage, waiting for things to change. And as they should, believers look to a loving Father in heaven for the delivery of each of those answers. In other words, in waiting for needs to be met, they wait upon God to meet them. The Bible is filled with admonishments to wait on the Lord. I have, there's a number of verses there in uh, uh, your outline if you're following along. But these and many more speak of the promise that God responds to those who wait on him. In Scripture, waiting is not a passive activity. In fact, it is a faith-fueled movement towards God. Waiting is a display of weakness where we move deliberately and consistently towards God in prayerful dependence, asking him to do what only he can do. For King David, it required strength and courage. Psalm 27, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Or we might go to Psalm 37. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Or even Psalm 130. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than watchman for the morning. So far from being inactive and passive, Waiting displays a deep and abiding faith in God's ability to respond. And we see that a number of times in the Bible, like in the prophets. We have well-known verses from Isaiah 40. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We could even turn to the prophet uh, Micah. And uh, he says in Micah 7, As for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Now, the Christian author and counselor, uh, Louis Smeeds, once wrote that waiting is the hardest work of hope. Waiting is the hardest work of hope. And I think that's probably true. The conviction of all these verses needs to be our conviction as well. That in our serious times of waiting, we need to watch in hope and wait in hope and pray in hope. Waiting is about how the heart leans. When the gospel's at work in our heart, it has sort of a chiropractic effect. It adjusts our soul away from self-sufficiency and shifts our posture towards God. We go from tilting away from God and leaning towards him, or to leaning towards him, from being active in the flesh and our own strength, as Ron talked about a little bit ago, to being active in the spirit and relying on the Lord and on his strength. And when it comes to our agenda for others and for change in others, often gets replaced with a very quiet but very real trust in God's active engagement on behalf of the ones 
that we love. But make no mistake, waiting is difficult. Waiting takes guts. It's hard. It's hard for us, and it's hard for a man called Job. So what do we learn about waiting from the two chapters that are before us this morning? Turn with me, we'll look at Job 18 and 19. We'll start by seeing why it was so difficult for Job to keep waiting. And that's because this passage opens with Bildad at his worst. Bildad at his worst, chapter 18. I'm going to start in verse 5 and then read to the end. This is Bildad speaking to Job. Indeed, the light of the wicked is put out, and the flame of his feet does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp above him is put out. His strong steps are shortened, and his own schemes throw him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet, and he walks on its mesh. A trap seizes him by the heel, a snare lays hold of him. A rope is hidden for him in the ground, a trap for him in the path. Terrors frighten him on every side and chase him at his heels. His strength is famished and calamity is ready for his stumbling. It consumes the parts of his skin. The firstborn of death consumes his limbs. He is torn from the tent in which he trusted and is brought to the king of terrors. In his tent dwells that which is none of his. Sulfur is scattered over his habitation. His roots dry up beneath and his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth and he has no name in the street. He is thrust from light into darkness and driven out of the world. He has no posterity or progeny among his people, no survivor where he used to live. They of the west are appalled at his day, and horror seizes them of the east. Surely such are the dwellings of the unrighteous, such is the place of him who knows not God. Bildad is talking to Job. This supposed friend of Job, has become cruelly vindictive in this, his second speech. And although he's condemning Job for sin in his first speech, he also offered some encouragement, as you would expect from a friend. At that time, back in Job chapter 8, he held out hope for Job. He told him, Job, if you only plead with the Almighty, your earlier blessings would seem insignificant in comparison to your future prosperity, although I don't know how you could call losing 10 children insignificant. But Bildad told them that God would yet fill Job's mouth with laughter and his lips with shouts of joy. So that's good. But now we've come to his second speech. And remember, Bildad is the cold, calculating one who's debating Job's situation at sort of an intellectual level. And here we find some of the harshest words in the whole book. And I don't know how you would react to this if you were on the receiving end of this kind of scorn and judgmentalism that Job is getting. And if our tendency is to want to respond in kind. And at some point, you know, when the insults just keep coming and coming, people reach a limit. And the gloves come off, and we try to fight fire with fire. And uh, and if you think about it, it's not hard for us to do. In our world, it's very easy to get hurt by words spoken behind our backs or when we hear people gossiping about us. And it's easy to be offended by what we hear and read online. 
And that happens to a lot of us over a whole bunch of different things. But it's a little different here because Job isn't being stabbed in the back. The verbal jabs in the book of Job are very personal, very pointed, and they're said right to his face. And when you're denounced to your face, it hurts even more. And that's what's happened to Job. Bildad is drumming condemnation and damnation on the head of his friend. Furthermore, he says a part we, verse we skipped over that Job has treated his friends as though they're cattle, as stupid in his sight. He says that in verse 3. And so in this thoroughly vindictive reaction, Bildad employs 25 images to depict the fate of a wicked person like Job. He's basically saying, you are the unrighteous one. This is what happens to the unrighteous one, Job. Look at this list. His lamp will be snuffed out. The flame of his fire will stop burning. The light of his tent will become dark. The lamp beside him will go out. The strength of his steps will be weakened. His feet will be thrust into a net. A trap will seize him by the heel. A snare will hold him fast. A noose will be hidden for him on the ground. A trap lies in his path. Calamity is hungry for him. Disaster eats away parts of his skin. Death's firstborn will devour his limbs. He's torn from the security of his tent. He has marched off to the king of terrors. Fire resides in his tent, burning sulfur is scattered over his dwelling. His roots dry up, his branches wither above. His memory perishes from the earth. He has no name in the land. He's driven from light into darkness. He's banished from the world. He has no offspring or descendants. He has no survivor where he once lived. Men of the West are appalled at his fate, and men of the East are seized with horror. With friends like that. That's what Bildad has for Job. This piles up one terrible image of pain and hardship after the other. So much for compassion. And two of these images anticipate Job's prospects are particularly unsettling. They're startling. One, he says, they, they predict death being so destructive. He says, the firstborn of death will devour his limbs, verse 13. There's only the son of death that cannot kill, but it can do worse by consuming his flesh. And beyond that horrid experience, he will be brought to the king of terrors. Verse 14, the ultimate terrorizer is death, who's going to bring to Job horrors far worse than anything he's undergone up to this point. Because, Bildab said, Job is an unrighteous man who knows not God. But we know that's not true. But Bildad has just run out of things to say and just unloads with both barrels. All these horrors he went through, that's certainly your fate. It's just a terrible list from a man professing to be his friend. So what about Job? How does he deal with it? That's the question for today. He's been hit with this list of horrors. How does he handle it? Well, he doesn't repay evil for evil. 
And I think that's remarkable. I mean, I read that and I'm like, how he keeps from punching him in the face, I have no idea. How would you deal with it? I mean, maybe your boss puts pressure on you by telling you you're not a team player and, you know, I may have to look elsewhere for that promotion because you refuse to lie to that client for him. Or what do you do when people say, uh, you know, we think that you think you're better than us because you don't join in our party and have to work on Friday? Godliness can be seen, and it serves as an irritant in the unbeliever's conscience. And when they see quiet, consistent, determined, brokenhearted faithfulness to Jesus in you, I guarantee, at least sometimes, some of your friends will not react well. And so the question is, if it comes, when it comes, how do we deal with it? How does Job deal with it? What can Job say in response? I mean, after all, he has to admit God's treated him pretty brutally. All his wealth and possessions are gone. His ten children, sons and daughters, are all dead. Bodily diseases torment him. He has all these uh, festering sores and wounds. He's sitting on an ash heap and scraping himself with pottery. And now his friends have basically just unloaded that all these terrible things are, have happened to you and are going to happen to you because you are unrighteous and you know not God. How does he respond? So in chapter 19, we get to see that. We get to see Job respond to these harsh words, which have to be painful to hear. And at first, it seems that they cause him to fall to these great emotional depths. The first part of this, we see Job at his lowest. Job 19, verses 1 through 22. See, Job's response is both predictable and understandable. I mean, he feels abandoned and he feels rejected. His world is not only filled with suffering, but it's now surrounded by hostility. He's been rejected by his counselors, his friends, and he says their attacks have been shameless, verse 3. He's been rejected by God and says that God has wronged him in verse 6. And he's been rejected by everyone else. His wife, all of his remaining relatives, even young children, have all turned against me, verse 19. So let's take those one at a time, starting with hostility from his friends, starting chapter 19, verse 1. Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me. Are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, Know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. I mean, we've seen this before. He's telling them, you guys don't really care about me. 
You're more interested in justifying your theological position and rationalizing my suffering and finding yet more ways to blame me. And it all just makes my life worse. You can hear the plea between the lines, just please stop. I can't take it anymore. And then he says, not just you. There's also hostility from God. Hostility from God, picking up at verse 8. He has walled up my way so that I cannot pass. And he has set darkness upon my paths. He has stripped, me, has stripped from me my glory and taken the crown from my head. He breaks me down on every side and I am gone. And my hope he has pulled up like a tree. He has kindled his wrath against me and counts me as his adversary. His troops come on together. They have cast up their siege ramp against me and encamp around my tent. So Job is acknowledging all of his calamities. And as Bildad used all those images to cut him down, he employs some figures of speech to describe his treatment by the Almighty God. He says, God has drawn his net around him, trapping him like a wild animal. He has blocked his way so he can't pass by, even just to move on with the simple task necessary to sustain life. He's shrouded his pathway in darkness, so he has no clear uh, vision or understanding of how to proceed. He's stripped him of any respect he might have had from the community. He's snatched from his head the crown of royalty that rightly belongs to everyone made in the image of God. He has torn him, torn him down on every side. So he is like a defenseless city without walls that's exposed to constant assault. He's uprooted every remnant of hope he might have for the future. He says God's anger constantly burns against him. His troops advance against him, building siege ramps in anticipation of a prolonged attack. He sets up his forces so they encircle Job's fragile tent. I mean, Job is way down in the depths. His friends are against him. He thinks God is against him. And in fact, he thinks there's hostility from everyone. Picking up at verse 13. He has put my brothers far from me, and those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I have become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife, and I am a stench to the children of my own mother. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me, and those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh, and I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Job has escaped total destruction, verse 20, by the skin of his teeth. 
And now you know where that phrase comes from. Now today, in the world of social media, we have a phenomenon known as cancel culture. You've probably heard of that. Someone says or does something the online world deems reprehensible, and everyone cancels that person, cuts them off entirely. It doesn't even have to be something they actually said or did. It just has to be attributed to them. And everyone cuts them off. Well, cancel culture wasn't invented in the smartphone age. It's been going on in every generation. And it was going on in Job's time as well. But if you think about it, it especially happened with Jesus. He got canceled. Isaiah 53, 3, speaking of Christ, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Everyone ran away from him, his closest friends. One of them betrayed him. Another one denied him. Everyone hated him. They cried for Barabbas instead of him. So that was cancel culture and Christ. But now Job is canceled. And yet, he begs for mercy, for pity from his friends. Look again at verse 21. Have mercy on me, have mercy on me, O you my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. So we've seen Job at his lowest. He's finally reduced to just begging for mercy from his friends, accusing God of injustice. But then in a stunning turnaround, we see Job at his highest. Job at his highest, starting in verse 23. The other day I wrote you in the weekly email. Uh, hopefully you get that. Um, if not, talk to me or Andrea, and, uh, or just talk to Andrea, and we'll make sure that you get it, because if you tell me, I'm just going to tell her And anyway. But I told you that something amazing happens, and that we see Job rise from the deepest depths to the greatest heights. And in order to be, first to understand the change that's going on here, we start at verse 23, he says, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. Oh, that with iron pen and lead they were engraved in the rock forever. That's pretty amazing. He's saying, I wish someone would write down my words so that people in future generations could read them. Wish granted, Job, because here we are, literally millennia later, reading his words. Now, I think, I'm guessing, um, in heaven, Joe might wish that some of his words hadn't been recorded. But here they are. And God has a purpose for them. It's why he brought Job through this, so he could bring consolation to God's people in every generation for thousands of years. Think about it. God comes to you and tells you, I'm going to wreck your life. I'm going to destroy everything you have. I'm going to take away everything you hold dear, give you suffering that you can't even imagine. 
and we're going to videotape the entire thing so that people can watch it for the next 4,000 years so they know how a godly person responds to suffering. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I think Job might have something to say about that. But he says, I wish they were written down. And God does. They are written down for us here in the scriptures through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit who's come upon the author who wrote down these words and God in his sovereignty protected them from every uh, attack for centuries so that we can read his words. And now Job is about to say some things that just soar beyond his circumstances. We have seen him at his lowest. Things are desperately bad. And I think these words have greater meaning for us as Christians than they probably even did for Job when he said them. Given that we are beyond in history the death and resurrection of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, we can actually put more detail uh, to these words than Job could. Job spoke these words, but, you know, like the Old Testament prophets, they didn't always understand the future significance of everything they said. Because Job will say this, he's then, we don't know if he understood the future significance because we're going to see uh, next week he'll be right back to this same depressed state of mind in the next chapter. And that's just how it goes for him. And the scholars are divided, but it doesn't appear that he fully grasped everything he said. So what did he say? Well, this is Job at his best. He's testifying of his Redeemer and his own personal resurrection glory, starting at verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, for whom I, uh, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. So Job has a hope that God will eventually hear his case. His friends won't listen to him, but he has a hope that God will listen to him. And in this context, he expresses his confidence. I know, I have a certainty. Nothing can shake me from this confidence. I know that my Redeemer, my Goel, that's the Hebrew word, it means kinsman redeemer. It's the role that Boaz played in the book of Ruth. It's the divinely appointed one who must take up my cause. I know that he lives. Now God himself has set up this system of kinsman redeemer. The Almighty has determined uh, this for the orphan, the widow, the disenfranchised, that they'll have some recourse in the final appeal before the courts of justice. We see that spelled out in the book of Leviticus and then uh, practice given an example for us in the book of Ruth. So Job claims a permanent hope arising from this same principle of justice. But Job has no earthly relatives to take on this role of kinsman redeemer. 
His relatives have forsaken him. His sons and daughters are dead. His wife urges him to curse God and die. His closest friends condemn him without an ounce of compassion. So God himself must be his Goel, his kinsman redeemer. Now, many of you, I'm sure, will recognize the first line of this passage, for I know that my Redeemer lives as a line from Handel's Messiah. Handel's Messiah is a 260-page oratorio, which, I looked it up, is a musical composition for orchestra, chorus, and multiple soloists. The author is George Friedrich uh, uh, Frederick uh, Handel, the German composer lives in uh, England. He was very much down on his luck financially. Things had not gone well for him. And a wealthy friend named Charles Jennings had given him a libretto, which is the text of a dramatic musical work. So it's the lyrics without the music. And this text is a set of Old Testament prophecies, scriptures that have been grouped together and how Christ has been the fulfillment of these Old Testament prophecies. And Handel was asked to set them to music. So he set to work on August 22, 1741. And 24 days later, he finished. 24 days, a 260-page oratorio. And it's widely considered a musical miracle, especially given the quality of the music. And as he completed the Hallelujah Chorus, the most famous part of the oratorio, his servant came in and wrote that there was sheet music everywhere, just all over the place, a total mess. And the composer was down on his knees with tears streaming down his face. And he said, I think I did see all heaven open before me and the great God himself seated on his throne with his company of angels. I thought, wow, wouldn't that be something? Oh God, do that for us. Give us a vision of heaven that would cause tears to stream down our face, that we would be able to see the infinite majesty of God seated on his throne and a company of angels surrounding a hundred million angels worshiping. You could get through anything in your life if you could just have a vision of the Hallelujah Chorus. But then Handel immediately follows this amazing chorus with a sweet area, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And it's peaceful. It's exactly what needs to follow that vision of the infinite majesty of God. And this is a solo, it's originally written for Sopranos, that has to do with this individual personal salvation flowing down from the sovereignty of our great God seated on his throne, a God who can reach down to us in our misery and our brokenness and save us. And the scripture that he wrote, that incredible music, for I know that my Redeemer lives, we just heard, it's Job 19.25. And it represents Job at his highest. I think for Job, what we're seeing, the best analogy I can come up with is this, a vision of heaven 
It's depicted here like you're up on a mountain and there's spectacular scenery in the valley below you. But there's also clouds passing by that block your view. But then there's a break in the clouds and you can see the incredible scenery, but then the clouds come again. And that's what it's like for Job. He's coming in and out of this unclouded vision of the future, this eternal resurrection. Because of that, people immediately conclude that this is the high point of Job's faith. He now understands that a Messiah is coming and he will be raised with him in an experience of redemption. That may be true. I can't quite go there yet. You see, Job is still wrestling with deep questions. And in our own pain and suffering, our deepest need is to face God. But how is that possible? In his agony, Job feels that God is bearing down on him, but at the same time, he knows that only God can rescue him. As he wrestles with all the suffering that he's enduring, in Job's mind, and even in his words, he's saying God seems to be the problem, but he also knows that God is the only solution. How can God, who's so terrifying in his power, so overwhelming in his holiness, so vast in his knowledge, how can such a God ever relate to insignificant, weak, and ignorant human being like me? You see Job's dilemma. It's as if only there were a redeemer who would stand for him. And as those who stand on this side of the coming of Christ into the world, we can see what Job longed for, what he imagined as his only hope that has in fact come to pass. We have that redeemer. We have the one who stands both on the side of God and on our side, the one who can stand between us and reconcile us to God. And we now know of the one who's an expression of the love of God, even as he appeases the wrath of God through his death on the cross. Job, in his deep pain, sees the problem. And Job, in his deep longing, points us to the only solution, a solution that's found in the gospel of the triune God, that God in his grace provides his own son as our redeemer. And in Christ, God, out of his love for us, satisfies his own wrath against us and receives us as his own children. As the Apostle John says, 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And that is worth waiting for. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and confess our failure to trust Christ as our Redeemer when we've been wounded. 
We forget he is the one who rescues us and heals us and justifies us before the Father. Remind us of these gospel truths so that in our serious times of waiting, we will be able to watch in hope and wait in hope and pray in hope. Lord, if anyone here is facing hostility this morning, let us point them to the man Christ Jesus who reaches down to us in our misery and our brokenness and can save them and us. Grant us compassion to listen to them carefully. Give us words for them of kindness and hope. Let us point them to your son and to his redemption. And so work in each of our hearts this month as we learn from a man called Job. And draw us ever closer to our Redeemer, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And then one.